Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here for part two of our year in review, 2023. All the bad things that happened and all the news that came out in the cybersecurity world. I am Brian, a cybersecurity attorney. And I am Ryan, a cybersecurity architect. If you missed our first part, we discussed the 10 most impactful or 10 most significant hacks, in our opinion, of 2023. There are so many thousands to choose from. We picked those 10 for the reasons that we talked about in the last episode. Go back and take a listen to that. You can also go and listen to the episode immediately preceding that one, which was our predictions for 2024. Yes, we like doing things in reverse here at the Fearless Paranoia Podcast, talking about the future before thoroughly analyzing the past, which is probably how most of the companies that got hacked got into the situations they're in in the first place. So we're going to dive right in here. We've got a really interesting topic today, which is to talk about the biggest events, the biggest news, the biggest things that went on and kind of shaped the world in cybersecurity in 2023. And we're going to start right off with kind of a collection. Uh, we're going to call it our repeat offenders collection. So the first topic is to talk about th- some of those, we'll call them dishonorable mentions, who happen to appear in the news multiple times or are being chastised for having been in the news multiple times in 2023. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Yeah, well, we were gracious enough to keep this list down to just three, even though there's <laughs> undoubtedly more that could have made this list. But for the sake of brevity, we wanted to just get kind of straight to the few top tier offenders. And I'll go right away to the first one, which is T-Mobile. <clears throat> and boy, has T-Mobile had a rough year even before 2023, but their woes continued well into 2023. And on a few different occasions, T-Mobile made the news again in the cybersecurity space for uh, cybersecurity intrusion release of information onto the dark web and whether that was internal information in some cases, information on their support representatives, employees, and their businesses. It was also information on their customers and customer phone numbers and addresses and all sorts of other uh, good identifiable information. And for anyone that is deep in the cybersecurity space nowadays, you understand that those mobile phones are a huge core piece to the way that we protect a lot of our identities and our accounts. And things like SIM swapping have become much easier to do and much more prevalent and well, what better way to be able to get into starting a SIM swapping enterprise than having a bunch of information about mobile customers so that you can call and harass their support folks and start the social engineering means to run down that path. And so uh, T-Mobile found their way in uh, more times than is probably comfortable. And uh, yeah, it's an uncomfortable position. And you know, a couple of things you really have to remember. First and foremost, I'll say this right from the start is if you're you look more curious about SIM swapping and the effect that the T-Mobile hack had on that, we did an episode on SIM swapping back in the spring. I strongly suggest you go take a listen to that because we had some really good discussions there and some insightful information that'll help you understand the uh, issue better. But I also want to point out that you know T-Mobile just recently completed their merger with Sprint. That entire merger was only allowed on the basis that they agreed to several measures to protect competition in the industry, one which was that essentially they spin off a portion of their business in order for that portion to turn into a new cellular company. And yes, I do really think we need to hire highlight how ridiculous it is that we would allow them to absorb the number four cell company only if they agree to create a new number four cell company out of you know a discarded appendage. But anyways, it's really critical to note that it is that company that has been part of a huge merger that has sucked up a lot of especially middle income uh, users in the United States who you know exposing all this information. And the fact that they're in the news multiple times is not good news for them or the regulators who approve that deal. But I will get off my high horse and jump on 
on to the next one because another huge, huge, huge problem for anyone in, in the cybersecurity space, the move it breach yeah. breaches. Yeah. So move it had a tough time. Progress Software's very popular file transfer utility, move it, suffered what could be looked at as either one extensively ongoing breach, or it could be looked at as a variety of breaches, which is realistically what it was. Under the hood, there were multiple CVEs involved in this. And so it was numerous different kind of pieces that cascaded together to turn into one really long war and peace length story that continues on to this day. The big part about MoveIt was not only the fact that their software continued to find problem after problem after the initial intrusion, but just the, the sheer mass of data and customer impact, both to personal level, average citizens across the United States and other countries, businesses. I mean, there was very few markets that this didn't really touch because of how broad and how far reaching this utility has kind of found its way. It was absolutely a really impressive breach at its core, and it is one that we will probably continue to hear information about for at least the next year, if not the next couple years, as they continue to uncover more customers that were impacted, as those customers start to really judge and kind of talk about the level of impact that hit their doorstep as a result of this hack. Undoubtedly, there will be numerous legal cases popping up, uh, again, for probably the foreseeable future around move it and their woes. Yeah, when you're dealing with protecting people's information, when you advertise yourself as the secure solution, you both dramatically increase the uh, obligation that you place on yourself while making yourself a much bigger target. Speaking of big targets though, we got to move on to our next one here. The move it breach is a big deal. There's plenty of information you can find in some of our previous episodes if you want to look more into the nature and the severity of that breach, but we got to talk about Okta. Let's go. Well, you hit a point at the end of move it there is uh, this is a company that specializes in and their main focus is on protecting identity. Basically, they're a key holder at its core. That's maybe a gross oversimplification of what Okta does, but they're an identity provider, a secure identity provider. So this is the key holder into a lot of your assets. They offer a really easy way for companies to set up single sign-on and secure methods of accessing different resources from single point. And the problem there is as soon as you impact or you breach that single point, it opens up a lot of possibilities. And so Okta really at its core is not just an identity provider, but a cybersecurity company, which means that their job is to be the secure protector of all of these gates, all of these doors on behalf of all these companies. And to see them show up in the news once is expected, not expected, but it's not unusual because threat actors would love to target identity providers. It's a, it's a huge place to go, but to have them pop up in the news, not once, not twice, but three or more times in the course of a single year, it just shows that there's a lot of work to be done to really fine-tune the service that they're offering and really kind of get back to that point of secure identity holding and secure identity transfer. Hopefully, we'll see them make their way through 2024, knock on wood, with less noteworthy instances. Otherwise, who knows? There might be another episode on its way. Yeah. And I will say that talking about Okta does lead us nicely into what is our next topic. 2023 saw several major companies, I don't want to say slow play the release of information about breaches, but release information about breaches early on that significantly downplayed what the ultimate size or the severity of the data breach turned out to be. And the two biggest examples in my mind of this in 2023 were Okta and the one we want to talk more about here is 23andMe. So now Okta, they initially started, they said that only a handful of their customers were impacted by this. And then it turns out that, oh no, we're sorry, it was every single one of you. And that was over 
a rolling release is you know, slowly got bigger and bigger. The 23andMe case in my mind is even more significant because of what was taken. Now, we 23andMe is another one of those that we talked more specifically about this breach and we're going to talk more about it in the future because of what was taken, but also the nature of what they disclosed. At first, it was a very small portion of their customer base. And again, Ryan, you can talk more about this in a second, but it wasn't a traditional hack either. It was something like 6,000 accounts that were accessed, but now they're saying that the data of 14 million people may have been released. Oh, and by the way, on the same day that they announced that information, which I believe was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, they also came in and at the very end of November, beginning of December, slipped a little change of their terms of service into their plan saying, oh, by the way, there's no class action arbitration against us. If you have a claim, you have to pursue it yourself, which is likely going to be more expensive for you and more likely to result in a judgment in 23andMe's favor and make it harder for you to pursue any claim. But 23andMe and Okta both exemplify what we've seen, this slow rolling of this release of information. We talked about it briefly last time that you know you can't necessarily one or the other pin a bad faith motive on them. But Ryan, how do we deal with this trend that we've seen developing? Ooh, I'm going to micro machine man my way through this one because I do have a lot to say and I want to keep it relatively brief. But the first one is, is I don't mean to overly correct you, but this was kind of a traditional hack. As a matter of fact, at its core, this was identified to be credential stuffing that led to most of these breaches that occurred at 23andMe. So realistically, it was- But it's personal accounts that were breached as opposed to 23andMe being right. at their company. So 23andMe wasn't effectively breached from the outside per se, right? It was abuse of their accounts through people reusing passwords and doing things like that that allowed the threat actors to get into their systems. And so from that point, I don't think 23andMe really has any major fault laid on them except for the fact that they didn't enforce things like like MFA or any secondary protections on their account, which realistically any company nowadays that is offering accounts that have any sort of valuable information behind them should be doing that as a default, secure yeah. by default nowadays. So we definitely spent a good bit of time talking about that in the episode yeah. too. So yeah. So slap on the hand. The second part, again, I don't want to try to overly correct. I think that the account total was actually somewhere upwards of like 18,000 now, uh, not even just 6,000. So I think it almost tripled and it probably will continue to grow as they continue to identify this, but that's not really the major impact, right? So there was 18 thousand accounts or six thousand or whatever that were impacted through this credential stuffing attack and so we've identified that identity is a major area of shortcoming but it's what happened behind the scenes that really was like the story to tell here so yes they had relatively not tight security practices letting people in the door that shouldn't have been in there or should have identified that they were coming from new locations or something. But behind the scenes, the way 23andMe works is they allow you to take your information and they use the data they've collected and their algorithms to start tying these people together and to build this network of data that connects you to other people through genetics, through all these different means. But the fact that that information is readily available at the user level is really where the big spill out happened here because whether it was 6,000 or 18,000 accounts, when you consider that one account can be connected to hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people through those genetic ties that they're building. Well, not just connected either. It's sharing, sharing information and making it openly available to. Yeah. What other way are you going to be able to go through and search for what relatives you may not know about that are part of this network if they're not allowing that data to cross thresholds like that, which means now 18,000 accounts turns into millions of connections and millions of shared information. So while it may not be their entire account that they've been shared, like it may not let you look up their address, their phone number, or other like directly personally identifiable information, you're able to look up at bare minimum 
who they are, where they're from, what their genetic backgrounds are, and start to tie together things like ethnicities and all the other pieces that 23andMe is really well known for putting together. And so just the fact that they're a custodian of this huge set of data and that they had such bare minimum protections around that data really kind of makes them complicit in this whole spill out. So even though they can point the finger back at the end user and say, well, you reused a password, so really this is kind of your fault. Well, at the same point in time, if you are building that kind of connection with that level of data on the background, you should be better at protecting it and you should have stronger means to authenticate your users and you should really identify what the potential spill out of this kind of nature could be and the impact that it could have on your users. Because right now, I flat out would never recommend anyone jump back into 23 and use that service right now and apologize to all the people that did and have but let's be honest poor custodianship of this type of really sensitive data on their behalf and small changes like them enforcing secondary factors of authentication could have prevented the majority of all of this well, and one really interesting aspect of this too is that it appears that it wasn't even just ethnic background information that's being available. There were certain snippets of your actual DNA profile that they were allowing you to share without really fully disclosing what that meant. And so, you know, this is information that we don't even have the fullest idea right now what can be done with. And well, and at the human level, we may never fully understand what can be done with that. But now we're entering the era of AI, which means all of a sudden now that information is going to be easily weaponizable in some fashion very shortly in our future here. And mm -hmm. that's the part where this really starts to turn scary is that AI can really start doing those second level, third level, fourth level kind of aggregations that take into account what that data can do and how it can be used and it can piece together the rest of those pieces of the puzzle that we as humans may take a long time to really do and it can do it at the snap of a finger with the amount of computing yeah. power we have out there nowadays it just it opens up a lot of unknowns which are all terribly terribly scary at this point i think that's the point that you made when we were describing it during our generative ai episode is doing any of these things at scale you know taking all of this massive information consolidating it down and doing potentially bad things at scale i think one of the interesting ways that we we can look at this is that we are talking about how dangerous AI can be. So let's actually move on to our next big story here, which let's face it, we could not discuss in the major news of 2023 without discussing OpenAI and ChatGPT. And of course, the biggest news at OpenAI has been the call it the coup and the reverse coup that took place recently. And Ryan, give me your cybersecurity architect view of what happened there and, and how it impacts your perspective on generative AI. Oh man, there's again, so much to say here. Um, mm -hmm. At its core, just to simplify it for everyone listening, if you're unfamiliar with it, what really happened is uh, Sam Altman, the kind of one of the co-founders of OpenAI, ended up getting removed by the board of OpenAI. And when he formulated OpenAI and built the board, that was actually part of one of the fail-safes that he put in place, was to make sure that no one person could really kind of steer the direction of this company, and that the board would always be there at its core, a nonprofit board, to kind of guide the direction, to keep this thing on the rails and keep it safe for humanity and keep that kind of those ethics and that morality in place. Well, and on top of that, what's interesting there is that yes, it was a nonprofit. So the company OpenAI that you, if you are subscribed to ChatGPT, you're paying a for-profit company for accessing mm -hmm. ChatGPT, but that for-profit company is 100% owned by the nonprofit entity that Ryan was just mentioning there. So it was a very unique setup to protect the ethos 
of this yeah. safe AI. Yeah, it was meant to be an integrity move. And it worked out exactly as he indicated, that the board decided, hey, you've overstepped your bounds. You've created something that we think is now potentially inherently dangerous to humanity, and they kicked him out. Or at least we think that's why. It hasn't really been fully fleshed out, and I doubt it ever fully will be, uh, in an honest fashion, what really happened. But yeah. Well, as, as we've been talking about data breaches, I'm sure at some point in time that data is going to make its way out. All data does at some point anyways, at least that's what our previous episodes have mm. kind of alluded to. But then what happened afterwards was equally impressive is that that failsafe failed itself as well, because not only did Altman get removed, but then a majority of the employees of the company stood up and said, no, we don't like this. He may have had his problems and we may not have agreed with everything he did, but we want our leader back or we're going to up and move. Well, one other trump card that they had in there was that there was a huge investor that just came on board not that long before that, and that was Microsoft one of the biggest technical investors in the world. And they didn't have a, really a seat on that board. They didn't get a major you know, decision-making power, but they had a lot of money invested in this, which means that their voice, even though it wasn't official, it was mattered. loud. Yeah, it mattered. It was very loud. And so they flat out opened up and said, well, here's the thing. If you guys are going to kick out Altman and you're going to kick out a bunch of his engineers and a bunch of other people are just going to flat out leave the company, we're going to make spots for them over at Microsoft then. Mm -hmm. Microsoft's investing heavy into AI, not just in open AI, but in their own AI tools, Copilot and all the other things that are coming out there. So they said, you know what? Let's be perfectly honest about this. Sam Altman was never going to be able to handle life under the thumb of Microsoft. No. Uh, he, he so relishes being the futurist that and being the no. face of it together. Yeah, there was no way. This was absolutely a power move behind the scenes. Well, not even behind the scenes. This was a power mm -hmm. move, a public power move sitting here. And so it came down to the fact that open AI was either going to suffer a massive exodus of all of their brain trust, or they were going to have to bend over and say, mm -hmm. we made a mistake. Let's bring Altman back and keep all you guys around. And in doing so, most of them called for a removal of the board, or at least a chunk of the board. There's no or, way that wasn't going to happen. When you lose a power struggle. Well, and what it ended up with now is, so now you have a nonprofit board and now Microsoft has a seat on that board. And so now you have one of the major for-profit investors that is supporting this company that is putting heaps of capital into them that is now sitting on that board. And you can know for darn sure that Microsoft is not a non-profit style company. They are absolutely a for-profit venture. They're hugely successful and they are not going to sit back and let this thing not be monetized mm -hmm. in some fashion or at least take out the pieces of it that they want and monetize it outside of the purview of a non-profit board. It's just not going to happen. And so it was really an interesting story. We don't got to dig too far into it, but I think there's going to be a lot more to say and a lot to watch in this space as this saga continues to unfold because I don't think that the boat has quite stopped rocking on this yet. It yeah. may be, it may look like it for the moment, but there's still a ripple effect of some waves around this. Oh yeah. And I will say that the two biggest takeaways that I got was like you said, number one, you're never going to have an organizational structure like this get money like OpenAI did from a company like Microsoft because Microsoft knew coming in that they were not going to get a voting seat on the board. That was part of the deal. But given what happened so quickly after their money was put into the company, there's no way that they or any other major company is ever going to take a non voting position in a company like this again. They're going to insist on a voting stake right off the bat. So whether or not this yep. is a great business governance setup to protect the ethics of the open AI company, it has forever doomed itself because of how successful it was at protecting itself when that protection was triggered. But the other thing that is somewhat disappointing in my mind is that it is proof, not that we need 
needed proof, but it is a blatant, out there, broad statement that no matter what you say about the ethical pursuit of anything that has the potential of being monetized, the money is going to win. And the problem with that is that money is not unbiased. Money is not free of strings. And it's as clear a statement as any that you'll ever find that even in the most scientific of pursuits, which generative AI and general AI are, the money is always going to win. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. Next big story of... 2023, you can't talk about anything in cybersecurity right now without talking about what's going on in Eastern Europe, in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Ryan, what is your biggest takeaway this year from that war? Well, and you talked about the importance of money being a factor of the equation. Well, (laughs) in this particular case here, we're going to not just talk about the fact that uh, between Russia and Ukraine, there's been massive cyber warfare escalations across the board. But one of the most noteworthy that's come up recently was a big hit that Ukraine laid back onto Russia. Russia's got one of the most notable and powerful cyber forces in the world. But in a David and Goliath type story, you've got Ukraine that on occasion can hit back and can hit back in really heavy ways. And this was this was a haymaker. This is one that nobody should overlook. And it's one that will probably have a large response and ramifications, and that is the hack of the Russian tax system and a lot of the other government organizations that are part of the tax system uh, were also part of that fallout as well. They went in and took the Russian tax system and were able to destroy most of their servers using a wiper utility, which is a piece of malware that's known to just be purely destructive. We're not talking espionage. We're not talking data exfiltration. We're talking just boom, make it go away. And they did that not just to the Russian tax system, but to all of their backups and to numerous of their support agencies as well. And so it wasn't just a boom, it was boom. This was a big boom. And so this is going to have far-ranging impacts across Russia. It's going to affect Russian citizens. It's going to affect Russian businesses. And just like it's going to be an election year next year here in the United States, and it's an election year in Russia as well. Now, granted, it may not have as big of an impact on their election because we all know how the Russian election is going to end up. We've seen the writing on the wall for a long time, but it's going to have a lot of impact on public opinion going into things like that election as well. And it's going to cause some major headaches, heartaches, and pocketbook problems all across Russia for quite a while going forward. Makes me wonder if that's why they made such a big deal about their relative success on the battlefield to the entire exclusion of the discussion of their cyber warfare. Let's do a couple quick hitters here for some of the tools and techniques of cyber attacks that we've seen kind of rise in 2023. We know that one of the big methods for cyber attacks that really kind of came into vogue in the last couple of years was the supply chain. But there are a couple others that we really want to talk about here for some of the big new tools for cyber attacks. Ryan, what do you think those look like right now? Well, like we've seen for quite a few years leading up to this, social engineering is one of the most important kind of initial intrusion and initial measures that's used in a lot of these attacks. It's a lot easier to get somebody to open the door for you or commandeer their keys 
than it is to find that ever elusive zero day or something else that's kind of exploitable that method. So that's where we go back to the generative AI and the LLM conversation is back in the day, social engineering was a little tougher, especially for overseas adversaries, because they come in with a slightly underwhelming knowledge of language or mechanics. And so you go back to the old days of the Nigerian prince and those types of emails, right? Where it was pretty easy to tell if it was a foreign non-English speaker that was writing this. And so you could use that as a major tell. But in today's day and age with generative AI being able to craft extremely well-written and professional looking correspondences, those phishing emails are becoming a much more impressive tool. And then generative Mm -hmm. AI being able to develop code and be able to refine code is going to make those actual tool sets when you do start looking for zero days and you look for exploits and things like that, or even the behind the scenes things like improving the effectiveness of command and control systems or other persistence mechanisms or exfiltration means. So generative AI is going to have a lot of great things that can offer the world, but just as many for the bad adversaries of the world as well. I mean, I'm just hoping that it offers as many good things as potential bad things. What other big developments have you seen? Well, uh, another big one is one of the things that I have complained to my wife about for many years now, and she's probably completely sick of hearing me say about it, but she regurgitates it to everybody else all the same is QR codes. Boy, were QR codes an amazing thing when you really look at the core of what they can do. You take the old barcodes back in the day, and they weren't really useful to most people outside of general business. But QR codes kind of opened up a whole new world. You can program all sorts of data into those. You can put websites into those. And before you do it, like in the COVID era, people were, you know, offering menus at restaurants right when restaurants started to open again. It said, oh, we're not going to give you a menu because we don't want to have people handling these things and have to sanitize them or whatever. Scan this QR code, and you can look at the menu on this website. Or my least favorite one, Super Bowl advertisements. Whoever that was that put up that QR code in the Super Bowl and said, oh, we got like a few million scans in 30 seconds, scares the bejesus out of me. Because you know what? All it would take is for one of these bad actors to say, hey, we're just going to leverage some of this Bitcoin money that we've picked up from all of these ransomware attacks. And we're going to buy some Super Bowl advertising slot. And we're going to pop up a QR code with nothing else around it and just attach it to a bad site with a bunch of bad mobile malware on it. You know how quickly people are going to be to just go, woohoo and just start scanning that QR code just like they do with every other QR code around the world. I don't even know how to pronounce it. The ishing attack that comes with the QR code. It could be quishing, kishing, who knows. I assume it's quishing just because, yeah. Sure, that's that's great. I mean, yeah, that's that's, uh, that's about the most delicious way to say it anyways. Um, But uh, no, I think that that right there, for the love of God, I think QR code is a cool technology, but it's been commandeered so quickly by the bad actors. Please, 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 please be careful before you just go randomly scanning this stuff because it's basically like rubbing your hand along any railing that you find out in the open and then shoving your fingers in your mouth. It's just there's so many bad things that could come from this. And yeah, nine times out of 10, it might be completely benign and safe, but it's that one time out of 10 that's absolutely going to put you into a mode where now you have to figure out how to recover from that. And it's just, it's not worth the risk. And you're not going to know where it came from. All right. So until it's too late. Oh, yeah. And so what are some of the other big threats that you see that have developed most over the past year? Well, I'd say that the biggest one that everyone needs to pay attention to now, uh, even outside of all the election stuff, is the focus by bad adversaries on critical infrastructure. This Mm -hmm. is something that started popping up a while ago. We talked about Colonial Pipeline years ago. Uh, In 2021, there was an article that didn't get very newsworthy and really should have been. Back in Florida, there was a threat actor that I don't think they ever determined who it was or where it was from that impacted a water treatment plant. 
a kind of plant yes, that yes, has the, remember, yeah. that has SCADA systems that can go in there and adjust things like the amount of different chemicals that are being put in to treat water. Well, they actually tried to poison the water supply in this town in Florida, and they failed. There wasn't a ton of information out there about, again, the attack itself, other than the fact that it happened or why it failed. But the fact is, is that they got that close. And if you live in a major city and someone's able to commandeer your water treatment facility and uh, do so remotely and be able to poison a water supply, think of how broad that impact could be really quickly. We're not even talking about critical infrastructure like, oh, they shut off our power or oh, they shut down our ISPs. We're talking about like they poisoned the water people are drinking to stay alive and people start getting sick and dying right away. Our power goes out, our internet goes out, we're going to suffer a little bit. You start drinking bad water, uh -huh. you could die. And if they can do this at scale at some point in the future, that's really scary. And I'll toss in one alternate version. Most of the houses in this country are still connected in some way, shape, or form to natural gas. And that's mm -hmm. that odor that comes along with natural gas so that you know that there's gas is not natural to natural gas. It's actually added. Mm -hmm. It's added yep. at the point of delivery. And all that would take is a modification of how that is delivered to the natural gas that's being sent out to all of a sudden have gas leaks and no one would know there were leaks. Well, most of these systems that are coming out nowadays, all these apps, all these whatever, are all kind of built with some sort of security mindset in place. None of these industrial control systems that have been in place for many, mm -hmm. many years now, decades in some cases, were built with any security in mind. It was absolutely an afterthought because most of them were never made to be connected to the internet. Yep. But now many of them are. And that is absolutely terrifying. Well, uh, as a nice jump off there, let's go to talk about something that's a little bit less doom and gloom. National cybersecurity. Mm. One of the biggest elements of the news from the governmental standpoint, while I talked about it briefly in our predictions for 2024 episode, is that there really hasn't been much in the way of action as far as what you get from Congress in a privacy or cybersecurity statute. However, from an executive level, we've had several announcements regarding cybersecurity and AI that do essentially set rules for moving forward. Ryan, tell us a little bit about the National Cybersecurity Strategy, which is probably the most important of that group. Yeah, the National Cybersecurity Strategy is just kind of a, it's initial steps really at this point to start really getting security to be part of the picture. As we start to be more internet connected and as we start to really kind of get everything into the internet so that we've got remote capabilities, we need to understand that there are far-ranging implications that we've discussed all over this podcast. But from a national level, there needs to start being some mandates to really not just protect the government systems and protect critical infrastructure, but just to kind of start talking about how are we going to approach the fact that the threats just continue to grow and continue to compound. And we need a framework. We need some sort of guidance from that level to really start kind of reining in some of these businesses, reining in these different areas, and kind of providing that fence, that level of control around and some guidance on how to bring this all together. And this is kind of the first step in that direction. It's a pretty decent first step, but there's going to need to be a lot of maturity in this space mm -hmm. going forward because you can lay down these frameworks, but a framework is still at its core just a piece of paper. And if nobody's really going to follow these pieces, if there's no enforcement mechanism behind it and there's really no teeth behind it, it might as well be the same roll of paper that you find in all of your restrooms. Um, and so realistically, it needs to be enforceable at some point in time. So it's great that this is coming about now, but we need to be constantly re-reviewing and maturing this approach to things so that we can get to a point of building security by design and security by mentality and getting that bred into everybody so that we don't continually end up just chasing our tail as we have for decades in the technology space. 
Yeah, but absent actual, you know, national guidance from congressional legislation, this was an important first. It's not really a first step. There have been cybersecurity strategies before, but this set out things for private industry that has never really been talked about before. Yeah, Congress has kind of done a lot of discussion and a lot of spinning in circles for a long time. This finally feels like the first real true step in the right direction. And so I hope that this isn't the only step that we take. I hope that this doesn't get politicized. I hope that we can all understand the importance of having this kind of framework and this kind of guidance we'll have on our ability to be effective in the future as we continue to embrace the connected world that we've built around us. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. There's two more topics we got to talk about here. The first is SEC versus SolarWinds, essentially a lawsuit by the SEC regarding the SolarWinds disclosure of data breach related information, including filing a case against the chief information security officer. Now, it is a civil case. It's not a criminal case, but you know, it's not like the case against the Uber security director, but it is a very significant uh, action by the federal government to punish a company for what they're at least alleging was not just inadequately representing what happened in a breach, but misrepresenting. What do you think? Well, and it changes a bit of the game because I think that the government has really tried to hold businesses accountable in the past, but the buck usually stops at the CEO and a lot of those in the past, right? The CEO mm-hmm. is kind of the person of responsibility, kind of the top tier. And if the government's going to interact with an organization, they usually start right at the top because that's, again, the responsible party in their mind. CISOs in historically in most businesses, most businesses not being ultimately security-minded businesses, the CISO in a lot of cases is, is a part of the C-suite, part of the, the executive structure, but doesn't really have that same place at the table that a CEO, CFO, even CIO, CTO tend to have, COO, etc. It's kind of a junior partner is kind of how it's been felt in the past. But now this person has become an immediate responsible party for all things security, which changes the game in a couple of ways. It means that, heck, I wouldn't want to be a CISO at the moment right now. Second of all, CISOs for any business that is going to have a CISO, they need to have a strong seat at the table and a strong voice going forward for a couple reasons. If they don't, they are now sacrificial lambs. That's mm-hmm. all they're going to be because now if the government's going to look and say, oh, the CISO is the one to blame, well, that's great for the CEOs of the world because then they can just go replace them, get a new CISO and say, hey, we got a new CISO. This should be better now, right? We've trimmed the problem. But CISOs are really, they hold a very important job in a business. They guide the policy. They guide the direction of how a business is going to protect their information systems, their security of their data, security of their systems, security of everything that they hold as being proprietary or detrimental to their business, things that hold major legal responsibilities for them with their end users, with other business partners, with vendors, with the government, with regulatory agencies. And so for a CISO to hold this level of 
responsibility and to have that much fire underneath them, they need to have at bare minimum an equal voice at that table going forward and their recommendations need to be respected. People in the C-suite need to start understanding the importance of that position and the fact that you aren't going to be able to just sweep this stuff away in the future. While the SEC went specifically after the CISO, I don't know that that's going to be a precedent going forward. I really kind of hope that it's not. I think it should be a shared responsibility, but again, that's, you know, who's going to listen to me anyways? I think it really changes the game. It absolutely changes the game. I think at the very least, it gives CISOs and prospective CISOs considerable leverage in bargaining for their next raise. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about here is, I don't know, a meeting of some black clad individuals in a dark room. Ryan, I, you sent me something on this and I got to hear more. Oh yeah. So this was the meeting of the five eyes, which is, uh, it, it sounds as clandestine and shadowy as it probably really was. The Five Eyes is an intelligence sharing apparatus. Five nations, I think is what it's, it's US, yeah, US it's, it's Australia, US, Canada, UK. Australia, New Zealand, and UK. And so those five partners have set up this organization so that they can share important information in the information age with each other. So really it's imagine like the equivalent of like the CIA or the FBI or something getting together with their partner organizations around the world to embark upon joint efforts. Mm -hmm. And in the information space, that game is global at its core, right? It's of no surprise to anybody that major US and and other organizations that get into that information security space keep an eye on things that go on outside their borders, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the United States is watching China. China's watching the United States. Everybody's kind of watching everybody in those spaces. But building alliances and partnerships really kind of increases the efficacy of your abilities in those spaces. It gives you a larger subset of data. It gives you a lot of, you know, additional allies to share in the fight with and to you know share in resource utilization for different efforts so the five eyes historically has kind of been just it's not like a gang of internet spies basically at its core but the part that was really interesting here is there hasn't been a lot of notice about them doing anything physical like actually coming together and saying hey let's sit around the table and let's have a chat until just recently and so that's where i pitched it to you as like the world council in the marvel (laughs) universe or something like that right you're talking about five behind the scenes super spies of the information age getting together in a dark room hoodies up over their heads all just kind of talking together on what they're going to do to deal with the information world that is before us and again here let's be honest it was probably five suits anyways the majority of the people that are at the head of the five eyes organization probably know a little bit about some of these technologies but they're not going to be hands-on keyboard hackers the the, the people that work for them 100% but at its core these are going to be closer to bureaucrats closer to basically like the equivalent of these are the CEOs of the information spy organizations of the world getting together and, you know, sipping some tea or, you know, some brandy or something, whatever, whiskey's the, the new the new thing, uh, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But just the idea of all of these people together sitting in a room kind of sharing this information, just it sounds like it came straight out of a sci-fi show or out of a comic book or out of some sort of fiction. And it's just, it's amusing, if nothing else, to just kind of have Imagine. that. Well, and really, if these are spy organizations and these are some of like the leaders, how is it that we're even hearing about this meeting in the first place? The fact that it made news is almost just kind of silly to me, but but it's great at the same time because I mean, hell, it's the end of our piece of our podcast here. It's fun to talk about. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, if nothing else, it'll it'll just be 
Proof that someone is watching, yeah. If it doesn't create a bunch of really awesome memes, it absolutely should. And really, yeah. that's kind of, for me, selfishly, that's what I hope comes out of this in the end. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to hear if we ever do what they got together to talk about. If they are good spy organizations, we should never hear what that is. Mm, right. But we can speculate, and speculation is fun, and the meme game has been strong ever since 2020. So I really, really hope that if they're not out there already, and I haven't had the time to go look for them, God, I hope they, I hope they come out, because... It's just, it's too good for it to not. It reminds me of The Onion had an, a great article's uh, annual ninja parade. Again, slips through town unnoticed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in to our episode on the biggest stories in cybersecurity from 2023. We have a whole lot of great stories and topics lined up going into 2024. Uh, again, you can go back and listen to our predictions and we're hoping we're right on some, wrong on others, and you can find out which as the year goes along. We do hope that everyone has a safe and happy holiday season and we look forward to seeing you back here next year. If you found any of this stuff entertaining or interesting to follow, please share it with anyone who you believe might benefit from it as well. You can sign up to get updates on any new podcast episodes or blog posts at fearlessparanoia.com. You can also sign up on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Please do share this when you get the chance. That is how we get the word out to other people, and we appreciate anything you do on that front. Along those lines, on behalf of Fearless Paranoia, I am Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we will see you next time. 